he again said he would go onto the front line, but very often he would go without a stretcher. Because if I take a stretcher with me, he said, I need to take another, at least one other soldier with me. And that puts his life at risk. So he said, I'll go alone and I'll carry the soldiers back. So he ended up being on the front line in the fiercest of battles, but completely unarmed and refusing to kill and refusing to fire a gun. Wow. Welcome to Testimony, an encouraging look at how God works in people's lives. I'm very pleased tonight to be speaking to Tim Coltman. Thank you for joining us, Tim. Okay, no problem. Good to speak to you, Dan. It's a little bit of a unique one because we're going to be talking about yourself and another family member long since gone. We're going to start with his life first of all. We're going to talk about your grandfather, William Cortman. Perhaps you could just tell me a little bit about what you do know about your grandfather. Okay, well, William William Harold Cortman, to give him his full title, he was in the church that I go to at Winston in Burton-on-Trent. So he was a Christian. He was brought up in a Christian home as well. So he was a, a Christian. And he then got to a certain age where he, obviously the war started, the First World War started, and as a result of that news breaking, maybe he was wondering whether it was going to affect him or not. But he made a decision which was very different and quite unique in the fact that he said he would go to war, but he refused to fight. Now, that was quite an unusual thing. Now, many people think that as a result of that, he was a conscientious objector, but he wasn't. But he made that decision and then would say he would go to war and then he became a stretcher bearer. Um, when you read about stretcher bearers in the First World War, they went around in groups of four or six to carry the soldiers back. But again, William did something slightly unusual in the fact that he said, when I go onto the front line, and he was on the front line, uh, he shouldn't have been on the front line because of the decision he made. But when speaking to the army about that, they say, well, probably we were that desperate for soldiers to be on the front line, he volunteered. He again said he would go onto the front line, but very often he would go without a stretcher. Because if I take a stretcher with me, he said, I need to take another, at least one other soldier with me. That puts his life at risk, so he said, I'll go alone and I'll carry the soldiers back. So he ended up being on the front line in the fiercest of battles, but completely unarmed and refusing to kill and refusing to fire a gun. Wow. That's some yeah, stance so to take. It's completely different, completely different story to many stories. That when, you know, when I speak to people in schools and kids in schools about that, they, the first thing they talk about when they talk about war is guns and killing and death. Well, he was there for the opposite reason, to actually save life, not to take life. He would have stood out as being unique within the, the army at that time. Absolutely. And, and many, many people ask me, well, did he get a lot of stick from fellow soldiers for making that stand? And the, the, the simple answer to that is we don't know. Because William was very typical of soldiers of that generation and the fact that when he came back, he just didn't talk about, you know, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about now and that I talk about on a regular basis, he didn't talk about it. He didn't want attention drawing to himself. He didn't want other people to know about what he'd done. We still don't know how many lives it saved. We know the medals had been awarded. but uh, And so he just did not talk about it. So that itself was quite an amazing thing. He, you know, he probably did get a lot of stick from his fellow soldiers. But again, when speaking to people in the army about that, they say, well, 
okay, if he did get stick from soldiers, that's fair enough, but they would have quickly realised that actually we might need this guy, so maybe back off, because you might need him, to, well, you might need him today, never mind tomorrow. So he's just as important as the guys with the guns. Yeah. So which countries was he in? Well, again, it's very difficult to pinpoint. There are a few mentioned in, in, the, in the book, and we can trace a little bit of, you see, really, until the book was written, we as a family knew he'd been awarded the medals and they're quite a list of medals that we'll maybe get to in a minute. But um, because he didn't talk about it uh, until the book was written, the guy who wrote the book is a historian from Stoke-on-Trent and uh, he knows a lot more about the First World War than I will ever do. But when he first heard the story of William, he said, even though he knows a lot about the First World War, he said, I can't understand why I've never heard of this guy before. And then he was the one who went into the army records and archives and tried to find out about William and where he went and what he did. And he came back with so much information that he asked the family if he could write a book about him. And we gave him that permission. And we're glad we did, because without it, we wouldn't have been able to, to be able to speak about him. I certainly wouldn't be able to do the presentation on him, that's for sure. And that, that book was pretty significant. And, and my dad, who was the eldest of the four grandchildren to William, knew William for 28 years. But he said he never talked about anything to do with the war. And so, okay, we knew about the medals, but we didn't realise the significance that William had gone to to be awarded some of those medals and how he was regarded in the army, really, uh, until until years later. And so perhaps you could go into some of those medals that he was awarded, Tim. During the presentation, I focus on three. Uh, there are a number of others, but the first three, and the first one, the most important one, is the Victoria Cross. It's the highest award that any soldier can be awarded. There's none higher than the Victoria Cross. Then alongside that, we talk about two other medals, a DCM, the Distinguished Conduct Medal, and also alongside that, you've got the Military Medal. Now, the DCM and the MM, he was awarded both of those twice. So we've got the Victoria Cross, the Distinguished Conduct Medal twice, Military Medal twice. After that, we've got a number of other medals that were uh, linked to the First World War and the Second World War. And, and as a result of what he was awarded, he is now described as the highest decorated non-commissioned officer of the British Army in the First World War. Uh, we know there was four million soldiers went to war from this country. There was eight million from the Commonwealth. And so when you think about four million from this country, and then he's described as the highest decorated non-commissioned officer. So it's quite, a, quite an achievement. I mean, I'm not sure you'd say it yourself, but that's something to be very proud of, to have that, that in your family history. It is, and it's 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 strange how people talk about him. And uh, you know, when you talk about people in the military and they hold him in high regard, you know, I was, I was um, told about a, a professor who lectures on war in I think it was the uh, somewhere down in the West Midlands, and I was told that um, he has got a picture of William behind his desk, and he's a professor and these kind of things, you know, and holds William very highly. Uh, and there's another man who's a historian in our town and regularly writes in the local paper and regularly writes about William. And uh, he was asked by the newspaper one day who he would like to sit down and have a meal with. And one of the people he mentioned was William Colton. But he said, only if he's in a talkative mood, he said, because he just never spoke about all, you know, the First World War and his experiences. He just never spoke about it. So yeah, he said he would love to sit down and have a chat with him, as I would. Yeah. Quite an achievement. Well, he has a bit of a sideball question. If you could ask your grandfather any question, his grandfather or great grandfather? Great, great, great grandfather. Sorry, great grandfather. If you could ask yeah. your great grandfather 
any question, what, what would it be? Well, I, I often think about a question which I actually use in the presentation because his life is called The Story of the Two Crosses. And that's the title of the book. That was actually the title of it that was when he died in 1974. That's the, the man who spoke at his funeral spoke about that, the story of two crosses. And he focused on the Victoria Cross, the highest award that any soldier can be awarded yet. He focused on William's faith as well and the Cross of Calvary. And one of the questions I say to people in the presentation is if William was standing in front of us today, I would want to ask him just one question and say, if this is the story of the two crosses, my question is, William, which is the most important cross to you? And I can guarantee 100% that he would want to talk to you and everybody else about the cross where Jesus died. Not that the Victoria Cross wasn't important, but the cross where Jesus died was far more important to him because he knew that as a result of it, he was going to go to heaven and have everlasting life as the Bible teaches. And I think that, you know, that really sums up his life. Uh, two crosses, and yet there was one which stood way above everything else, and that's the one he would want to talk about. It's quite a nice picture, really, of the kind of the earthly, temporary things of mankind, and it's a, a wonderful honour to get, I'm sure. But the one which is of far greater glory and, and of eternal value is the one of our Saviour, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And that's the one that meant so much to William. And his, his faith and his Christian life was very important to him from a boy right in the way through to the, to the day he died. What did your granddad do when he came back? Sorry, what did your great-grandfather do when he came back from the war? That's quite an interesting thing as well. Because he didn't talk about it, it's quite remarkable in the fact that when he came back from war, he just carried on exactly doing what he did before he went to war. And before he went to war, he was a gardener. When he came back from war, you know, those medals today uh, have been left to the regiment. They've been willed to the regiment, and uh, we're delighted about that. They're kept in a vault in a bank. They're not let out without high security because of insurance purposes. If you speak to the army today and say, look, how, how much are those medals worth? Well, uh, it's very difficult to put a price on them, but I noticed that just recently there was a, there was a Victoria Cross sold for just over 600000 And so when you talk about to the army about the whole collection and the man and the story behind it all, they say it's very difficult to put a price on those medals, but if they were put up for auction today, they strongly suggest that the price would be well over a million, and it would probably run into the millions if they were auctioned. Well, with William, what did William do when he came back from war? Well, he actually just put the medals in a drawer in the lounge and went straight back to work gardening and never mentioned a thing. He didn't go around wearing the medals. He never spoke about the medals. He never went around telling people how many lives he'd saved or how many medals he'd been awarded. He did none of those things. He just... It was almost as if I went to war, I did my job, I came home. End of story. And and I think, I don't know, I wonder, sometimes I just think, sit and think about this, I wonder whether he would maybe be embarrassed by what he'd been awarded, because he would maybe say, well, I only did what thousands of other men did, you know, as far as this country was concerned. We, you know, and, and okay, he may be a, went above and beyond, but thousands and thousands of men went out and fought for their country and put their life on the line. And uh, and maybe, I don't know, maybe he was a little bit embarrassed by that, by what he'd been awarded and what things were said about him and what the king said. I mean, the king awarded him the Victoria Cross at Buckingham Palace and, uh, and things that were said to him and, and things were put in the paper about him. Maybe he was embarrassed by that. But, yeah, he just literally came back and just put them in a drawer in the lounge and went straight back to work as if, as if nothing had happened. Mm. 
And nowadays we talk about survivor's guilt and perhaps some of that was was in his life. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. Yeah, there was certainly no, from what I speak to the family, there didn't seem to be any after effects from the war. You know, obviously the generation that he was part of, they just didn't talk about the war because it was so horrific. Why would you want to talk about it? Why would you want to go over it? It's so different to today because people are encouraged to talk about their experiences and what they've gone through and all that sort of thing. But that's so different in that generation uh, that when they came back, they just literally did not talk about it. When your great-grandfather passed away, what what age were you? So I was literally just been born. So okay. I, I was three months old. So he held me as a baby, but I never met him. So um, he had a full military funeral. Soldiers lined the streets of the village. And uh, on one of the, the pictures of the funeral, uh, on one of the corners of the street, there was a pram. Uh, so I was in that pram. So, so I never met him, unfortunately. It does seem like the perfect transition into your testimony a little bit, Tim. We've uh, touched on his life. So you're, you're born into a Christian home. What was that yep. like growing up? Was it was life easy because of it? Uh, it, it was in many respects. Um, I had great Christian home and a great upbringing. Our life was around the church. And uh, if we weren't at the church, then people from the church were at our house. And uh, we, whenever we went on holiday, it revolved around going to the church as well. And the folks down there, and we used to go on holiday to Cornwall every year. There was always a crowd of people that used to do the same because when they were down in Cornwall, there was there was stuff going on down there, the church down there, and uh, there was a massive crowd of us, and it was that's what I grew up knowing, and it was great. And wherever we went, we met up with other Christians. Our house was always, you know, people were coming and going all the time and staying with us, and and it was great. I, I absolutely loved it. So the whole thing, the church life was was my life. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, wasn't always easy at school being a Christian and making a stand. Um, that was tough, especially, I would say, the last two years of my school life was pretty rough, to be fair. Um, I was not, I mean, I wasn't uh, the cleverest in the school anyway by a long way. So I uh, found school not easy, but certainly because of what I stood for as a Christian, because I didn't use the language that other people used and I didn't do the stuff they did, then, yeah, I got a fair bit of stick for that. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't change it for the world. Wouldn't change it for the world. And what age did you become a Christian? So I was only eight. I was only eight years old. I went to Sunday school as a boy and went to many gospel meetings where the gospel was clearly preached. And But I remember vividly one of the things that really spoke to me was the fact that uh, constantly I was being told, and rightly so, from the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, that the Lord Jesus Christ was coming back. And I knew my parents were Christians. I knew my brother was a Christian. And the youngest in the house, I was obviously always sent to bed first, which I thought was completely unfair, but that's what happened. And uh, and at night especially, I was always in fear because if the, if it, the house was quiet, I couldn't hear anybody downstairs. I used to think the Lord had come and I'd been left behind. So that was one of the things that really played on my mind a lot. So hearing the gospel and hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and the fact that he was buried and on the third day rose again, alive in heaven, soon to return. That was the thing that really spoke to me. And so at eight years old, uh, I became a Christian. And then about five years later, I was baptized. And uh, that was too big a gap, in my opinion, looking back. But that's what happened. And um, I, uh, at the time, actually, I thought that God would tell me when it was time to be baptized, actually, 
Um, it was pointed out to me that he already had done. It was in the Bible. Um, so, uh, and then two years later, joined the church uh, at Windsor in Burton-on-Trent. So life goes on, you get a job, you marry, you have a family. Perhaps you could go into a, a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was went to work straight from school, worked in agriculture, and I've worked in agriculture now uh, all my life. So been with this company for 29 years and the previous company for four years. So, uh, yeah, worked general in a, in a general merchants for farmers, agriculture to start with, and then uh, came to work for this company that I work for now. Uh, I used to run the depot, the depot manager, and then I was asked to train as an agronomist, which when anybody asks you what you do and you tell them you're an agronomist, kind of shuts down the conversation pretty quick. Um, so, yeah, I work on farm. I work as a consultant to farmers. And uh, I've been doing that for the last uh, 14, 15 years now out on the road uh, around the, uh, the area. Uh, so, yeah, I was uh, married in 1996. Got to get that right. And uh, uh, we have two children, Hannah and Luke. And so they're now grown up in their 20s. And so, uh, yeah, great family life. Very proud dad and thoroughly enjoy our Christian life at home. So at what point did you start and share your great-grandfather's story? Well, that's quite an interesting story as well, because whenever there was anything done to commemorate his life and the family were invited and the broader family were invited. I was the one person that never used to go because I was of the opinion, well, William never wanted the attention on him. So why should we give it now? He was always a very quiet man, a humble man, always in the background, didn't want attention to what he'd achieved and what he'd done. So whenever there was an event on, for that reason, I was the one of the family that didn't go. So what changed? Well, when the book was written, obviously I read the book and but it was actually, uh, we'd got a guy from Scotland called Graham Patterson down with us and uh, he was doing children's work and he read the book and he said this was a, a massive, this story is a massive gospel opportunity. And I'd, I'd never seen this, you know, the life of William as a gospel opportunity. And I said, well, how so? It, well, he obviously goes into a lot of schools and uh, he said we could turn this into a bit of a presentation, uh, which he then did uh, professionally. Uh, and uh, he started to use it in schools up in Scotland. Uh I'd got that presentation and uh, I used it in a school just down here locally. And then I noticed that also there was um, a report in a paper that uh, a WI, a Women's Institute group, had had a speaker. And uh, I thought, wonder whether there's any WIs around here. Thinking, actually, WIs, well, that's surely they're, they're all finished and gone by now. There won't be many of those around. Well, how wrong was I? There were literally hundreds of groups around Staffordshire, Derbyshire, Leicester. I was just looking in the local area. Uh, and so started to make one or two inquiries. And little did I realise that there are so many groups, not just Women's Institute groups, but uh, groups like Probus, professional business people, and Rotary Clubs, and U3A, University of the Third Age. And obviously schools were interested in the story uh, because it kind of ticks the box of religious education and historical facts. And... and uh, Obviously, they do remembrance assemblies as well. So that was uh, kind of a, another way into school. So, And then there's lots of other groups that just meet socially, but they always have a speaker. So word started to get out, and I started to do a few presentations. Well, uh, that was 40, that's, that's nine years ago now. So uh, I'm nine years in. Um, the year COVID hit, um, just before COVID hit, 
I've got 90 presentations booked in that year. And they are all over the UK and all at different times of day. Some are breakfast meetings, some are during the day, some are at night. You can end up a couple of hours away from home uh, um, at night and whatever. So, um, and they were all cancelled overnight. And I, I did a fair few presentations on Zoom during COVID. Uh, it enabled me to do sort of groups a lot further away. And But now, um, yeah, I, it's all through word of mouth. I would do a presentation. Uh, I do a number probably most weeks um, when my quieter months with work. And uh, when word gets out that I've done a presentation, you know, they'll take my card, my details away with them, those that have heard it, and pass it on to other people. And then you find other people then contact you. And and, uh, and so it just goes on and just keeps going on. It's just amazing how the opportunities that we've had with the presentation just in the last nine years and never, never done the same group twice, which is amazing. A little glimpse behind the curtain. Uh, you give a report on Wednesday night at our assembly, and you would put up pictures with the number of people in attendance, and there was fifties and sixties and some hundred, and it's just incredible to see all these groups. Yeah. And how does how does the message go down with them all? I would say majority uh, very respectful, and uh, because at the end of the day, I'm just telling the story of William's life. And, uh, and I can't tell the story of William's life without speaking about his faith. And uh, that's the most important part. And obviously, that's what I want to do is I want to get not just to tell the story. And I put a lot of facts in there about the First World War. So um, and there's a lot of historical groups that are, are interested in the story. And uh, for some reason, they like it. The very fact that it's a family member doing it as well for some reason. But um, yeah, it's a great opportunity to be able to weave the gospel message into the story of William. And I'm convinced, absolutely convinced, that the reason that he was allowed to be awarded all of those medals and to be held in high regard is so that we can reach thousands with the gospel today. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Um, I often wonder what he would think about me talking about him all over the country, what he would think about that. But if you were to tell him that we're able to reach thousands with the gospel and thousands of people that maybe wouldn't ever come into a gospel hall or to a gospel meeting, but are taking away the three tracks some are buying the book and they hear the gospel through the presentation a number of times. Um, we put John 3.16 up on the board and, and uh, other things that are, you know, the scriptures that are around the, the tomb to the unknown warrior, which is, a, again, an amazing story. The scripture scriptures that are around the edge of that, and we talk about that as well. And yeah, it's just phenomenal, the amount of people we've been able to reach over the last few years. Perhaps you could touch on that tomb of the unknown soldier. Because you, you said you had an interesting experience when you finally got to see it. Yeah, it's just amazing. That, that The story itself is the fact that that body that's in there represents all the soldiers that died in the First World War. And we couldn't repatriate all the soldiers that died. So there was a soldier walking across a garden in France and he came across a rough grave. At the top of that grave was a little wooden cross and somebody had etched onto that cross. It just said an unknown British soldier. And he had an idea. What if we just bring one back to represent all the soldiers that died? But how would we decide and what? who would we bring back? Well, they took four soldiers from the four main battlegrounds of the First World War, going to great lengths to make sure that nobody knew who they were. And those four completely unknown soldiers in their coffins, then draped in our flag, were then put into a chapel room. And one of our senior officers went into that room and he paced up and down in front of those four bodies. As he paced up and down in front of those four bodies, he then just suddenly and randomly turned and touched one. And that was the body to come back. The other three were reburied. That one soldier brought back to this country, first of all, to Dover, then from Dover to Waterloo Station by train, 
then from Waterloo Station to Westminster Abbey, taken through the streets of London. And thousands of people turned out to pay their respects where he was then laid in the tomb of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey on the 11th of November 1920. So what we didn't know until about six years ago was the day that that body was put in place, William was there. On one side were 100 men, all who had been awarded the Victoria Cross during the First World War, were asked to stand as guard of honour for the tomb to the unknown warrior. And in those 100 men stood William Coltman. And he never mentioned that to the family. We found this out six years ago. It was actually a historian who rang up and spoke to my dad and said, do you know where William was on the 11th of November 1920? Well, of course, no idea. Well, if you Google it, and you can have the list of men that stood there, and William was stood there. Uh, on the other side of those 100 men, of course, were 100 women, and they were asked to stand as guard of honour. Now those 100 women are also interesting because they had lost their husband and at least one son in the First World War. Some of those women had lost a husband and two sons. Some of those women stood in that line had lost a husband and three sons in the First World War. And so you've got 100 men and 100 women. Now, Around the edge of the, the four edges of the tomb of the unknown warrior are four verses from the Bible. And I just focus on one of them. And it says, unknown and yet well-known, 2 Corinthians 6. And so we say, well, we can understand part of that verse from the Bible. That soldier is completely unknown. Nobody knows who he is and what he has done. We don't know his name, his rank, his regiment. We don't know whether he served in the army, the navy or the air force. He's unknown. But the Bible then goes on to say, and yet well-known. And that's true. He's unknown as far as we're concerned, but he's well known as far as God is concerned. God knows who he is and what he has done for this country. And so that could be said of each and every one of us. As far as this great big world is concerned, we are all generally unknown, but we are all well known because God sent his son to die for us upon a cross. And so the story of the unknown warrior is a great uh, story that we can mention. And the fact that it's linked to William as well is just a, another opportunity to be able to bring the gospel into to the presentation. Yeah, absolutely. What are the three tracks that you give out at the end of each presentation? So there's three tracks that I've written. I started and the first one was called Full Valor because that's the two words that are on the front of the Victoria Cross. There's very little information actually on the Victoria Cross. For Valor is the two words on the front of it. On the back of it is the date he was awarded it, the 8th of October. And um, so that was to mark, that's just a general story about William and where he was from and what he achieved in the First World War. And then I did the, the track on the unknown warrior, um, unknown and yet well-known. And then the final one is uh, the day the guns fell silent to mark the 100-year anniversary of the, the end of the First World War. Uh, and so um, apart from when I'm in schools, but every other time uh, when I'm doing a presentation, I will physically hand those three tracks out to, to everybody that's there, whether there's 12 there or whether there's 120 there. And are they usually well-received? Yeah, uh, rarely you'll get somebody who refuses the leaflets, but um, but majority of the time people um, will take them and often will want more copies to give to somebody else who maybe wasn't there. So that's great. Um, that's so great. that's another opportunity. Not only do they hear the gospel through the presentation, but then they can take the gospel away with them and uh, and, and take them and read the gospel again when they get home. So the most important question, Tim, how on earth do you fit all these presentations around work? <laughs> well, I, I'm fortunate in many respects that I, I'm left to my own, to, to be my own boss in, uh, to a certain degree. Uh, I'm in sales, so uh, I've got a certain amount of customers that I need to look after. And there are certain times, because I'm in agriculture, that certain times of year are busier than others. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, so far, we've been able to, to, to manage it. I did look at going part-time a few years ago, but the boss at the time said, well, just, I don't think he thought I was going to be doing it for this long. So he just said, well, take just a bit more holiday to cope with the presentation. I don't think he anticipated I was nine years later, I'd be still doing it, but he's no longer my boss anymore. So, so that's what I try and do. But yeah, the, the, the problem is that there is a lot of groups that meet at night, which is fine. But there's a lot of them that meet during the day as well. And you can have a breakfast meeting, you can have, you could be lunchtime, you can be, so you just never know where you're going to be. And you just don't know what kind of building you're going to be in. You could be anywhere. And and uh, very often you're the only Christian there as well, which is an unusual thing to when we're preaching the gospel. But it's, uh, I, it's just a tremendous opportunity. I think if I can't get enthusiastic about being able to, even, it's this, even though it's the same story I'm telling every time, if I can't get enthusiastic about speaking to a big crowd of people in front of me who don't know the Lord, uh, and yet through the story of William, they could come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour. I mean, only heaven will reveal any that might have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Saviour and got saved. Yeah, absolutely. And just a reminder of the name of the book, Tim, in case anyone's interested in getting themselves a copy. Yeah, they can. They can probably the easiest way would be to come to me to get it. But it's called the story of the two crosses. Another way through it would be to go on the, the Precious Seed website. I think they sell it through their through their bookstore as well. But either either way, either straight to me or to to the Precious Seed website. That's great. And how long do you envisage doing the presentation for? As long as there's an interest. I've been often asked, "Is that the only presentation you do?" Well, at the moment it is. I have thought about. What happens if it dries up? And I have actually spoken to somebody about another presentation, which maybe we could put together and use. But at the moment, there's no let up. Uh, I mean, even today, I've had three groups contact me to go and do the presentation later on this year or into next year. I had somebody contact me the other day about 2025. Okay. So at the moment, there's, there doesn't seem to be any let up. And I'm, the longer it goes on, the, the happier I am, because that's where I'm at my happiest i suppose yeah. is when i'm either in schools doing assemblies or or doing the presentation and being able to reach many with the gospel and every year round about november time you'll get quite a few groups that are wanting to to have you in to mark the, the time of remembrance yeah. yeah a lot of people want it near remembrance and uh, november is always my busiest month by far so uh, there'll be some schools that want to do remembrance assemblies which is fine there's a big senior school local to us that have me in every year uh, and do uh, their the remembrance assemblies for each year group. Yeah, so sometimes you can be doing the presentation two or three times in a day. November's just sometimes crazy, um, but that's great. That's fine. I can cope with that. It's just a, a massive opportunity to be able to to reach so many people with in such a, such a short space of time. Yeah, absolutely. I want to spring one last question on you, Tim. Okay. Uh, I always ask my interviewees if there's a verse or verses that have been of particular help or or encouragement throughout the Christian life. Are there any that come to mind? It's it's very difficult, but I've got a verse on a picture in my office, which I often think about. It's actually 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 24, and it says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, or consider how great things he hath done for you. Uh, that's a verse which really I've had on my mind a lot over the last few years. Uh, I suppose the obvious ones would be to go to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I often think about that as I'm driving either to or from a presentation. 
And as I think I read the other night when I was with you, it says at the end of that chapter, uh, Mark chapter 16, and they went forth and preached everywhere. And some of the times I'm walking into a golf club or a hotel or some kind of building, and I think, and they preached everywhere, there's not a chance I would have thought I would have been doing some of the things I do and the places I go to and the people I speak to. It's just quite remarkable how the Lord works and how the Lord opens doors and gives you opportunities. And it's just, I just trust that I've utilized every opportunity and not missed an opportunity. That's my greatest fear, that I don't miss an opportunity or don't miss an open door that he's presented to me. And uh, just try and utilize every opportunity to be able to reach as many people as possible while I can. Well, it certainly sounds like you're reaching a fair few. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Tim. That's, that's great. No, it's a pleasure, Dan. No, nice to speak to you. Thank you for listening to Testimony Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review and sharing it on social media with friends. Thank you.